Hello and welcome to our FIS podcast, Castaway, keeping you in the know on the shipping and commodity world where we're all at home quarantined. We know that working and business has changed dramatically in the past couple of months, so developing a range of resources to help keep you up to date on everything happening. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit our website, www.freightinvestorservices.com, or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Hello, welcome back to Castaway, the FIS's podcast uh, i have here our usual guests of alex tom and kerry hello guys hi chris morning guys cool let's start with our market news overview before going on to a very quick update of our main markets on wednesday the 19th of august uh, let's start with alex you've got a story about southeast europe and the need for gas yeah i mean it plays into a couple of things that we talked about the last few weeks and that's people's move towards cleaner energy and again it revisits the whole capacity issue which has been sort of raising its head during these turbulent times so um this is a report from the petroleum economist and it says that gas is set to play a larger role in the energy mix of southeastern european neighbors so obviously spain portugal they've all been in the news about renewables and gas or whatnot but this time it's greece and bulgaria both countries are going to invest heavily in their infrastructure to sort of diversify their supply routes. Um, so Greece is traditionally very dependent on coal for power generation, and it took 34% of its output in 2018 from coal production. But Greece's 10-year National Energy and Climate Plan, the NECP, which they submitted to the EU, um, that was done by their sort of their, their new government, which is a bit which is viewed as pro-business. And, and this plan sees gas playing a bigger role in backing up the country's renewable expansion. So it's not there to replace it, but more, more to back it up. Um, Greece's heating industry and transport sectors are also going to be gas demand growth drivers. And according to this report, gas use and final consumption sectors should increase by at least 50% in 2030 compared by with 2017 levels. Um, Russia's Gazprom, uh, no surprise, will supply does still supply a large chunk of Greece's gas needs through a long-term contract with the country's dominant gas form, DEPA, that does not, and that doesn't really expire till 2026. But DEPA also has a contract with Turkey's Botas and an LNG supply deal with Algeria's Sonatrac. And um, you know, all these deals actually expire next year. So there's, there's obviously some scope for development and, and moving things forward. Uh, the article goes on to mention that the new EU-backed floating storage named the Alexandropolis um, and regasification unit will bolster Greece's LNG import options when it enters operations in 2022. There are more ambitious things on the, on the horizon with a, a, a pipeline project, the East Med link between Greece and gas fields offshore Cyprus and Israel. That looks a lot more speculative, but still it, it sort of lends legitimacy towards the fact that people are looking beyond the, the, the coal dependency. Plans are also underway to build the country's first underground storage facility, um, in the known as the South Cavalar project, again, you know that that refocuses on the fact that capacity is becoming a, a something that people are keeping their attention on. Another EU-backed infrastructure scheme um, is the interconnector between Greece and Bulgaria. It looks looks like a pretty large um, sort of uh, scheme, and Bulgaria will get access to Greece's LNG terminals and will also import one billion uh, of taps Caspian gas via Greece. So. I mean, the, the, the article also goes on to quote J.S. Palmer, partner at uh, a consultancy firm, Beringa, who specialise in energy. And J.S. says, natural gas is a critical opportunity for a low carbon future for Bulgaria. The societal case for conversion from lignite to gas is strong, particularly as new supply routes open up. Previous concerns over Russian supply dominance are beginning to fade. So, you know, again, there's a couple of things lending themselves towards the renewable and gas um, opportunities. 
it's less political dependency on less friendly countries and, you know, a societal demand for cleaner energy. So, I mean, it's no surprise to anyone who follows these markets, but perhaps uh, the investment in infrastructure will help uh, get people's attention on it. Well, exactly. And it's something we've been seeing in, in the massive growth in terms of the natural gas futures market as well. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, it falls right into that. Absolutely. We're seeing it across Europe. Tom, let's move on to your story. You've got one uh, from the BBC. Uh, yeah. Uh, article on the BBC today uh, from me uh, about Citibank's major blunder um, last week. Um, so I thought it was quite amusing as I think everyone uh, has at some point in their life logged into their bank account and seen a slightly lower balance than they were hoping to see um, but probably not quite to the extent that uh, Citibank uh, did last week. So City are acting as the administrative agent uh, for a loan to Revlon uh, from a number of creditors uh, which means City essentially it pays back the interest and manages the loan payments on behalf of Revlon. And mistakenly, they accidentally sent $900 million uh, back to the creditors last week instead of $1.5 million US dollars. Um, so someone's had a shocker. Um, but <laughs> because uh, Revlon are struggling to repay back some of this loan and uh, some of the creditors have been asking for the principal to be repaid because of Revlon's woes on the back of the coronavirus. Um, a couple of the uh, creditors, uh, one of them Brigade, which is a hedge fund, uh, has refused to return some of the money, uh, totaling $176 million. Uh, and Citibank are now taking them to court in uh, New York to get the money returned. Um, so unlike in Monopoly, where a bank error in your favour gives you $150 which you can spend, it would seem that a bank error in your favour in the real world does not mean you can keep the money. But uh, I thought an interesting article nonetheless. Cool. Thank you, Tom. Um, I've got one this morning from the FT, which is bringing up some points which maybe a lot of people have forgotten about because of all the virus crisis that we've had uh, to do with, of course, uh, Brexit and the access for our financial services into the whole of the EU at the end of this year. They're saying that um, there's no guarantee that we'll have access uh, to the markets, uh, that there's a real problem in terms of that the the EU itself, its its whole block regulations are in flux. You know, usually you get that ability for every each of the different, what was 28 countries, recognising each they have equivalent, uh, equivalently strict regulations and they just therefore accept that uh, if one country is, a country, a companies in one country, they'll, they'll be able to do business in another. But that is now at the end of this year in doubt, um, especially as we're seeing that a lot of the negotiations are not going very well. Um, the article really notes that uh, previous discussions on the equivalence of, of other regulatory uh, systems uh, has missed its deadline of the June 30th. So now you're gonna throw this problem on top of that. There's already around about 40 equivalent provisions scattered right across the EU in different financial uh, regulations and different financial groups. Um, but this does seem to be something which may come back to uh, bite the City of London um, in, in the behind. I, I, think. I think it already is to a certain degree. I mean, uh, I, from our perspective, I can say that, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's been a bit of a race to try and familiarise ourselves with 27 different regulatory regimes. And, uh, and uh, I, I think that every company in the city has that same issue right at this moment um, yeah. and is suddenly realising that they may have to before the end of the year. 
And you could have a, you could have a situation where the regulators could be incredibly busy as, you know, it doesn't mean that UK-based companies are going to be excluded from EU markets. It just means there may be a very quick rush to strike agreements with country-by-country basis in, in exactly. the EU, so a busy exactly. end to the year for them. But uh, Kerry, you've got a related story as well. Oh, I week. do, I do. This is from The Spectator, that grand old British institution, uh, and it's called Keir Starmer's Potential Brexit Playbook. The article itself is speculating on, on what the leader of the opposition here, Keir Starmer, uh, will do in order to, uh, to adopt a, a new position on Brexit. But I guess what struck me the most about this article was the built-in assumption to it that the default is now a hard Brexit. Uh, crashing out with no deal seems to be the natural assumption now. And in fact, the speculation in this article is that if Keir Starmer does take a, a firm position on Brexit, it will probably look something like Norway Plus. Uh, remember those old days, those distant days of three years ago when when the conservative position was Norway Plus and, and Labour's was to remain in the EU. So, um, you know, I think that this is, this is very interesting in that it shows just how far we've come in terms of shifting this debate, um, not even in terms of whether or not the UK should have much of anything to do with the EU anymore, but just whether there should be any form of deal whatsoever. Um, and, and that struck me because it's not something I think people have been paying attention to the last couple of months, but I think it's something that can and should start to dominate the headlines in the, in the coming months, because there's a very real possibility at this point of the UK departing without a deal. Yeah, and we thought we got through the most uh, tumultuous <laughs> part of uh, this year. And we could have, uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and end uh, a final twist in the... Uh, TV series of, of, of Brexit in the, in the UK. But yeah, no, something which we will definitely be keeping an eye on later in this in this year and bringing you up to date on. But for anyone based in the UK, you could have a, uh, an interesting end to the year. A, <laughs> exactly. a different kind of Christmas. Cool. Well, let's move on to our markets, as uh, I'm sure that listeners will be wanting to hear what's going on. Uh, Tom, let's start with you. What are we seeing in our iron ore market? Yeah, so uh, another crazy ride uh, on the iron ore runaway train. Um, so today, the September iron ore futures uh, trading 124.35 and the Q1 uh, trading 107.38. Um, last week, the numbers we were talking about were 114.65 and Q1 uh, 100.65. So SEP up $10. Um, and the Q1 up about $7. Uh, interestingly, if you look at um, what's gone on on the DCE, the, the onshore contract, that's gone up 36 RMB. Uh, but the rebar, the, the steel contract, uh, is flat week on week, exactly flat, no change. So we've been talking uh, quite a bit recently about how steel margins are getting crushed uh in China, uh, and this sort of very neatly highlights that this week that you know the iron ore price has gone up ten dollars, but the rebar price hasn't moved at all. Um, so you know, some of the stuff that's been going on this week, it's been quite an interesting week in terms of news stories in and around the iron ore market. But in terms of those margins, we know that rebar margins uh, in a couple of regions uh, in the northern mills are at negative thirty uh, yuan a. Uh, a ton so you know there is no money to be made in producing iron ore with the cost base as high as it is um at the moment uh, sorry in producing steel with the cost base as high as it is at the moment um in terms of 
um, other stuff that's been going on. The DCE contract rolled this month, uh, uh, this week, so it moved from the September from the pricing the September contract to pricing off the January contract, and a large part of the movement up this week, uh, people do believe, is a fact that. Um, you know, Positions that were being held as long positions on the January on the September contract have been rolled onto the January contract now, causing some sort of artificial move higher just with contract rolls um, because of the way that the DCE is structured. Um, there's also been a change in the terms of the DCE contracts. The DCE is a delivered contract, unlike the offshore contract. The SGX contract was a cash settle contract. Uh, and DCE is changing the rules around the qualities and the brands of uh, iron ores that are allowed to be delivered. Um, so with those changes in rules, we sort of the market seems to be expecting and certainly starting to price a bit more of a divergence uh, between the SGX price and the DCE price moving forward. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, and then the other interesting bit of news uh, in the week is that I think we talked about it a couple of weeks back. Uh, Vale uh, looking to get approval on some mines in the northern uh, yeah. northern system. Um, well, they've been given approval uh, for the $1.5 billion uh, Sarah Sol project in Brazil, um, which will increase their capacity by 20 million tonnes a year. So a significant uptick in um Vale tonnage potentially uh, in the coming years. Um, I mean, Tom, have you heard any further noises from the Chinese government, which had issued a couple of warnings last week about the influx of speculative money into the DCE market in particular? Um, uh, there, there was I, there was the big announcement at the end of last week, certainly, yeah. um, which has seemed to have done absolutely nothing to cool it at all. Um, there, uh, so I, I think in the past we've certainly seen when the market has been sort of running away like this, there has been significant intervention from the Chinese mm -hmm. government. But beyond exactly. the sort of uh, announcements from the exchange yet, with regards warnings around speculative trading and, and warnings around market manipulation, we haven't seen anything firm yet. Um, but I, I think uh, it. It would it would be uh, foolish to assume that that wouldn't happen again in this instance basis what we've seen in the yeah. past. I, I think that's definitely something to be watching for in terms of you know call it black swanish events or yes black exactly death, whatever you want to call it a mini black swan but uh, yeah um, yes exactly. There's got a good point where this market finally the bubble bursts it, it will without a doubt it always has <laughs> in previous years and uh and so uh it's it's just a question of what will trigger it cool yeah, we're setting up a great end of the year there we go it's bringers of uh, great positive news this morning but uh, let's move on kerry give us uh, an idea of what's happening market movement wise in the you know freight, you know freight. For once, a rather unexciting market. Um, the, the capes have been in a bit of a rut. Uh, they've been moving largely sideways this week. Uh, the spots 5TC average uh, on the capes is sitting at uh, 60, uh, 19.693 today versus 19.204 in the last week. So not even $500 up over the course of the week. Um, the Panamaxes have been grinding upwards. Uh, they gained over $1,000 over the course of the week uh, with the 4TC index 
uh, as of yesterday at 14,845. Um, Interestingly to me, the Cape paper continues to outperform the index very substantially. Um, you know, the September is trading at 22,850, so over a 3K premium to the, uh, to the spot right now. Uh, and compare that to the nearby Panamax, which remains actually at a discount uh, with September trading uh, only at uh, 13,125, um, you know, so about $1,700 below the index right now. Cool. Thank you, Kevin. Um, somewhat similar in the in the oil markets, uh, as not too much is happening again. But we pushed up above the forty five mark for Brent. We are seeing a continuation. It's a bit more like uh, the market is readjusting itself before we get to the end of the year. You're seeing things, especially with the move into backwardation uh, of the curve, especially in the high sulfur fuel oil. The point five percent is. Uh, behind on that, but you know you're seeing very strong positive spreads now on the the front of the high fuel. East West is finally flying up again. East West is difference between the Singapore fuel and European fuels, and for the East West 380, difference between the Singapore high sulfur and Singapore Rostam, that's pushed up to sixteen dollars this morning uh, before moving slightly back again. But remember, a few months back we were almost at parity between the two, so you know we, we are seeing back to normal trading levels. Uh, after almost getting to to flat, uh, so quite a yeah. revival uh, of prices, especially the the kind of strength of the Singapore market because it had been so oversupplied, loads of imports. Uh, now that with a drop of of ARB opportunities, lower imports, and you're getting that demand increase as things start to return to normality, it seems to have started to correct to go back in, and and also seeing a slight improvement in the the margins for for distillates and, and gasols generally uh, in the in the Asian market. But you're still seeing uh, high sulfur fuel oil market front month September Singapore 380 still in the uh, in the mid 260s 260 dollars uh, Rotterdam three and a half percent not too far behind around about 250 um, the 0.5 percent sink looking around about values mid 330 dollars uh, and rot looking about mid mid teens three 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 hundred okay. three hundred and fourteen or so so. Somewhat flat, readjusting itself in the market in terms of, of, of movements. So let's look at some points and uh, reasons for our, I mean, we've said it's a, quite a flat market on the freight and all, but Kerry, what we've seen supply and demand side? I mean, the easing of the congestion in the east um, on the Capes due to the crew changeover restrictions. We mentioned that last week. Um, that has freed up quite a bit of tonnage. Uh, that did run up against higher volumes from, uh, from West Australia. In terms of exports, though, so rates overall have remained relatively flat in the east. Um, you've seen that C5 West Australia China route fixing in the region of eight and a quarter for the last couple of days. Um, there appear to be enough balusters now headed to Brazil to actually drive down those rates um, uh, on the C3, the Brazil China route, which uh, I mean, there's rumors of Vale taking a ship uh, for C3 yesterday at only 17 and a quarter. Um, so substantially lower than what we were talking even last week. Um, uh, on the Panamax, we see that uh, from a supply side, tonnage in the east appears relatively plentiful. Uh, that's suggesting to me we might be near a ceiling, but we need to watch that for a little while. Uh, in terms of the demand on the freight side, look, the speculation on capes that's driving the futures market continues to be the fact that the uh, that Vale and the rest of the Brazilian miners will have to take substantially more tonnage in the near future if they want to meet their export targets. Um, and that's been what's driving the Cape paper so high. Um, 
but so far what we've actually seen is a standoff. You know, Valle has been holding out in particular for lower rates uh, and the owners have been waiting to try and play at spot rather than uh, fix a lower rate ahead. Um, on the Panamaxes, the demand has been driven in the Pacific largely by those NOPAC grain exports uh, from the U.S. Uh, West Coast. Uh, that continues to be the case. Uh, although, as I mentioned, given the time supply, that might start to feel a bit toppy. Um, it's worth noting on the Panamaxes that the U.S. Gulf grain season will, of course, kick in in September, uh, which may provide a good deal of support in the Atlantic as well. So let's watch for that. Cool. On the oil side, uh, the main news is uh, OPEC had its uh, monitoring committee and they've confirmed 97% compliance. So well done all of the OPEC plus nations. They're actually doing what they said they were doing. But this is uh, another story talking about the supply side, which we could be in problems later on uh, for you know, medium to longer term with, with this collapse in price and demand, which we've noted is not going to come back to normal levels 22, 23. Yeah. Um, so the investment in new oil extractions is going is seemingly evaporating. And an example is that around the Falklands, which uh, had already had a 1.7 billion barrel of crude discovery and you know this was a decade ago and now they've kind of left it all they're not going to be developing <laughs> anymore so that helps in terms of political things with with argentina about the arms but it's just one example of a lot of this future oil exploration which could set you up for a, a supply problem in the medium yeah. to long term but demand side um of course the the disagreement between china and the us they're starting their new phase of talks but they've delayed the review of phase one uh, and to an undisclosed date so who knows when that review is going to happen but china do seem to be importing more of uh, u.s exports and that's true of, of oil as well as agricultural manufacturing goods current levels of of chinese imports are, are quite a way behind where they should be uh, to complete the deal but um it gives them time to, to really ramp that up so it may have an impact in terms of of demand side but if you look at what has been reported on reuters in terms of funds and where they're putting their money uh, they've increased their long positions on brent by 17 million barrels uh, us gasoline by 5 million and us diesel by 2 million but also some increasing selling volume for uh, uh, on on nymex and ice and european gas so not too much of a change it seems that many of them really just still on their summer holidays Excellent. It's that time of year. Exactly. Um, we move on to some, some other bits of, of markets that we're seeing. Um, I'm going to do some a quick update on what we're seeing on the FERTS-wise, and we're still seeing a continuation of, of some decent strength. Uh, there's been another urea purchasing tender by India, which we noted previously had, had been driving up uh, prices. Uh, the volume was higher than what people were expecting, and also because the Chinese have also participated in quite a large large volume, which is at the end of last week, it really started to drive that that market. It has cooled into the week, but um, that had really pushed up prices. We were seeing in terms of urea paper markets, the AG did trade down to $272.5 for September, and that was down from a high of $285, mm -hmm. uh, while NOLA urea was down as much as uh, above, over $10, trading at $230 for Q4. But we've seen a new tender come in as well, which obviously bumped up prices again at the start of this week. But buyers seem to be cautious of how far this rally can continue, uh, especially with, you know, we've, we've, we've pushed up so far. Is it going to be continuing on? We, you know, it may have pushed up over expectations in terms of the, the yeah. tender to buy, but 
you know, but we are still seeing pretty firm in Nola Urea trading back to 245, 243 on Tuesday uh, for September. Uh, and this is also fed into the uh, NOLA DAP futures the past week as well, where September and October futures continuing uh, as the most liquid traded. Uh, but we could see this actually move towards uh, more long dated stuff with, with contracts like January, perhaps starting to trade that traded once this week at $324. So perhaps we could see some more people putting on some, some positions a bit longer dated. But that's what we're seeing in terms of FERTs. And we've got a little bit of update on tankers as well yep so this uh, little piece of information i got from the tankers if you want to read more about it you can actually read about it on the fis live app um, and this is under the title pirate special pirates of the middle eastern gulf so one of the youngsters here wrote this article i'm just i'm nicking his work really but he says that this back and forth between iran and the u.s is not a healthy relationship especially after less than a month ago the iranian navy had been using a mock u.s naval vessel as target practice for war games once again, all eyes will be on the Meg as charterers and owners will be losing confidence in the region's security and stability as the risk heightens. On paper, the most vulnerable routes originating in the Meg, TC5, TD3, C and TD8, one for a pub quiz perhaps, are the ones most likely to be affected. With TD3C still at record lows, there's little room for suppression. However, tensions don't increase in the region as TC5 and TD8 are seen uh, a steady and firm increase in rates from their COVID loads, helping sustain confidence in the forward curves. So again, if you want to read more on that article, more on pirates in the Middle East and Gulf, and more on what tankers are up to this week, log into our FIS live app. You, you gave the title of that news story, and I thought it was uh, FIS's own Gilbert and Sullivan musical. <laughs> exactly. uh, I thought we're, we're branching out past commodities. <laughs> Cool. Anything else from Tom uh, before we finish for this week? So, yeah, on the supply side for the iron ore, um, Kerry was talking about congestion of ports in China. And whilst some of that congestion is being cleared, we've actually had a, an increase of nine ships week on week uh, of ports waiting to discharge iron ore in the northern ports uh, in in, uh, in China. So we've got 170, 177 ships sat waiting to discharge, uh, which is probably helping some of this price uh, price hike uh, as it's just struggling to get off ships into China. Uh, in terms of deliveries, in terms of imports, um, weekly arrivals have risen nearly a million tonnes um, and uh, deliveries from uh, Australia and Brazil were up uh, 1.6 million tonnes week on week, uh, totaling 25.6 million tonnes uh, for the week. Uh, in terms of the breakdown of that, I mean, Vale has been the one we've been talking about consistently. They, are, they, they had a record shipment uh, last week of uh, 6.33 million tonnes. Uh, sorry, not a record shipment, but the highest, highest uh, weekly shipment for, for quite a while. Um, so they are getting somewhere towards delivering what they need to do, but probably still a long way short of hitting those targets that we've been talking about um, for much of the uh, much of this podcast. Uh, in terms of the demand side, um, we are coming out of the rainy season now uh, and heading into what is normally peak season for steel demand in China. Um, albeit, you know, China has been producing aggressively for the last few months with not a huge amount of demand to to take that on so you know feeling around what peak season may look like this year is a bit mixed uh expecting significant price fluctuations over the short and medium term but i think general consensus as we go into what's known as sort of golden september and silver october is that those peak months will play out this year as well maybe not quite so strong as usual but 
there is not expected to be any real dampener on um, that steel demand uh, coming into the Q, end of Q3, beginning of Q4 this year. Um, so watch this space on the iron ore price, really. Um, who knows where it goes? Thank you, Tom. Thanks a lot. Any other final points before we finish for this week? Not for me, Not no. Not for me, no. Cool. Not Thank you very much, guys. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Join us again next week.